Take your Bible and open it, please, to Revelation chapter 20. If you're using the Bibles that are provided in the hymn book rack, uh, our text is found on page 1230. We're reading Revelation 20, 11 through 15, or I'm reading it audibly, and hopefully you can read that while I read. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. We're looking at God's throne room in heaven. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sober words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation. We're thankful that everything we need for our knowledge of you here, our love of you, for life lived in a way that's pleasing to you, has been revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We thank you in advance for what we are going to see today from your Word, what we're going to read and see about the judgment that is to come. And I pray, Father, especially today as we delve into this particular doctrine, that you would ensure by your grace and by your Spirit that I say nothing, Father, that would be easily misunderstood. I would even pray that if people have questions about what I say today, that they would contact me and um, let me explain to them what really happens, because each of us is going to experience that which I preach today, and sometimes that's not the case. Father, I pray that you would keep us focused Father, some of us are so easily distracted. That's certainly the case with me. I pray, Father, that we might be able to focus on you, on your Son, Jesus, on your mercy and grace displayed to us in Him. I pray, Father, that if there are those present today, and there could always be, who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, who maybe raised their hand at some kind of service somewhere or signed some kind of card or joined a church, but they really don't know Jesus. He's not Lord of their lives. There's not fruit that gives evidence to them or others that they are believers. I would pray for those who may be in that condition that when they see what lies ahead, that they would throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ and be able to sing with gusto the hymns that we sing that talk about our redemption in Jesus. Father, oh, how it would be our desire that everybody who is under the sound of the preach word in the two services today 
would be gathered at the throne of God, hearing their sins acquitted in Jesus, going to spend eternity with Him and all who love Jesus, and not into the outer darkness of hell. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly before I was called to join the pastoral staff of Faith Presbyterian Church as associate pastor first in 1985, I received a letter from the Internal Revenue Service. I held that letter in my hand with apprehension and some degree of trepidation. I've been aware for years that the IRS can do things to people that other government agencies, state, local, federal, cannot do. I also was well aware of the fact that people who had committed all kinds of crimes maybe were never prosecuted for those crimes, but when they ran into difficulty with the Internal Revenue Service, they served time in jail. I knew of the notorious racketeer and murderer of the Roaring Twenties, Al Capone, who spent seven years in prison after committing untold murders and crimes, spent time in prison because he had not paid all his taxes, didn't spend time there for his life of racketeering and crime. So even though I thought I had paid all the taxes that were due, that I had only taken the deductions that were allowed for me as a minister of the gospel, as I held that letter in my hand, it intimidated me before I opened it. Now, sometimes when somebody gets one of these letters, the letter is opened and you find that you made some minor mistake on your income tax. Uh, the government has adjusted, the Internal Revenue Service has adjusted your tax return. And there'll be an invoice in there and you send a check for some small amount of money and everything is copacetic, everything is good with the service. Sometimes, actually, like in the Monopoly game, there's an error in your favor, and there's a check in the envelope when you open it, and of course, that's a good thing. I did not have the good fortune of receiving either of those last two kind of letters. My letter said I was going to be the subject of a full field audit. I was instructed to call the IRS and to make an appointment for an auditor to meet me at my place of business, which at the time was a lovely new building that we had built at Emanuel Presbyterian in Wilmington, Delaware, the church where Pat and I um, first pastored where we did a church plant. So they were going to come to my tiny office. I was told to bring to the appointment, as I recall, three years of previous returns, all our bank books, all our CDs, everything that we had used as receipts to substantiate deductions that we had taken on our return. And we were to bring all of that material for the year that was being audited. Now, I look back at that. I was thinking yesterday, I find it incredibly humorous that the government would have spent so much money to audit a young couple who made relatively little money and hadn't had a lot of years to accumulate wealth. But I got my letter and I called. I made my appointment and literally in an office the size of some of the good closets we have at Faith Church, maybe smaller, and no nonsense, 
suited officer of the IRS, an auditor, sat across from me. He placed his printing calculator on the desk. I was on one side, he was on the other. And he peered carefully into every nook and cranny of Pat and my financial life. Do you remember the sounds that those calculators made? I mean, just the noise that was made as he crunched numbers was intimidating in its own right. The experience of sitting there as he worked without small talk or comment created some more anxiety and dread in me. Now, I want to tell you, my experience has been that their auditors are very good. An elderly lady in the church we had attended when we were in Greenville, South Carolina, and seminary had died and had sent us a check for what today would be, or her estate sent us a check for what would be about $4,000. He discovered in the year chosen for the audit that we had spent more money than we made. Now, I made a mistake here. I, I joked with him. I said, doesn't everybody in America do that? He never laughed. He was not a funny guy. But he wanted to know where that money came from since it didn't appear to come from our savings, and he knew it hadn't come from our income. Now, fortunately, I remembered that check and told him about it, and of course, a gift like that is not taxable income. Sometime after our audit, I received a letter from the agency saying that our return was in order and that we owed no additional tax. Now, you can imagine we were both tremendously relieved and filled with intense, immense joy. In the years since, I have on occasion gotten another letter from the IRS, I think three times. When I held those letters in my hand, and they always seemed to come after vacation in August, I don't know why, but I would come home, get the mail, look at the letter, and every time I looked at the letter, I remembered how I felt back with the full field audit. Now again, we never had another one of those again, thank the Lord. Our scripture reading this morning gives us notice of an audit that each of us is going to face. It will be far more thorough than anyone can ever get from a human auditor. The appointment with this auditor is the appointment with an auditor who knows everything we ever thought, everything we ever said, everything we ever did, and he knows the motive for all of the above. Now, there is a way to not be terrorized by the thought of this audit, but we're going to experience it, and it should have an impact on how we live our lives, and certainly it should have an impact on how we relate to Jesus and His sacrifice. Look at our scripture again, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. The writer, the apostle John said, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. The earth and heaven fled from His presence. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, if you know anything about the last book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, it's poetry. Uh, there are a lot of metaphors in it. There don't need to be actual books to be opened. What is being communicated to us is that everything we've ever done is recorded, and it's going to be open. Now, let's take um, a look at what happens to a person when he or she dies. What happens? Now, that question is a question I have been discussing most recently when I am in the pulpit here at Faith Church. And there are two reasons that I'm doing that. One is that I have arrived at the age, actually some time ago, when you read obituaries, there are people my age all over the page. So I thought it would be a good idea to kind of review and take a look at what lies ahead for me. I say with uh, Paul that the time of my departure is at hand. The second reason is I attend, well, I attend two really good, great men's Bible studies. One meets here uh, on Saturday morning at 7.30. One meets here Tuesday. Both of them are in the office area in the conference room. Meets Tuesday at 6.30. In the 6.30 group, um, there are people of all ages, and the guys in that group came to the conclusion that it would be good for me to preach on life after death. And so I agreed. Now, if you want to see the earlier part of this series, and you go to our website, on January 2nd, I preached what happens immediately when you flatline, and on June 19th of this year, I preached what happens when Jesus returns. Now, let's proceed. If a person has received Jesus as his or her Savior and Lord, at death, he or she is immediately present with the Lord in their soul. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that to be away from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. It says literally, at home with the Lord. Now, God has not revealed a lot of detail about this intermediate state where we live as disembodied spirits awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. Just not a lot of information. We are told, however, that during this intermediate period, this interim period between death and resurrection, that we live in conscious awareness that Jesus is present, conscious awareness that we're with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and all of the Christians who have died before us, all of the believers for whom life on earth is over. We also know from the Apostle Paul, who during his life was taken up into this intermediate state for a period and came back from what he writes in Philippians 1, 21 through 23, that to die is a win. He says to die is gain. He also says that to depart, life here, and to be with Christ is far better. Now, I know we have at least one consummate fisherman in the group this morning, fisherman, and there's a saying among fishermen, a bad day fishing is better than a good day anywhere else. 
I can tell you, based on my study of the intermediate state for that sermon a while back, that Scripture teaches for a Christian that every day after death is better than the best day they ever had here in this life. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, tell us that at Christ's second coming, the believing dead will be raised from their graves, and they will have bodies when they're raised that are made suitable for everlasting life on a renewed earth. You're not going to float around on a cloud somewhere for all eternity. We are going to experience a new heaven, a new earth. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden, only better. Their bodies will be reintegrated with their souls. Jesus will bring the souls of believers with him, reintegrated. At the same time, the bodies of people still living. So if Jesus comes while I'm preaching this sermon, are you wishing he would already? I mean, come on, give me, give me a break here. At the same time, the bodies of those living will be transformed and made suitable for that same eternal life on the restored earth. Those alive at Jesus' coming bypass death and dying. Wouldn't that be wonderful to not have to go through that? Philippians 3.21 informs us that when Christ returns, He's going to transform our lowly bodies, that's our earthly bodies, and He's going to make them like His glorious, that means resurrected, body. Jesus' body is the model for what you're going to get uh, in the resurrection or if you're transformed because you're alive when Jesus comes. The resurrection of our bodies and the reunification of our souls is the Christian's great hope. I told you last time I preached, our great hope is not dying and being with Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. But the believer's hope, as described in Scripture, is that Jesus returns and we receive resurrected bodies and are reintegrated. The complete destruction of death is the goal of Jesus' incarnation. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Christ came to save our souls, but he also came to save our bodies. He came to save all of us from the destruction that sin brought to both body and soul. All creation awaits. All creation anticipates the return of Jesus and the resurrection of his saints. Romans 8, 18 through 23. Now, when Jesus returns to earth, it's not just believers who are raised from their graves and given bodies that are suitable for eternal life. Unbelievers are raised also, or if they're alive at Jesus' return, they are transformed and given bodies suitable for their eternal future when Jesus comes. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 28 to 29. A time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Prior to the resurrection of unbelievers, after they die, their souls, because they've rejected Jesus, rejected the gospel, their souls are in torment 
already, Luke 16, 23 to 24. Now, when does the final judgment take place? Well, Jesus in John 5, 28 through 29, uh, which I read a little bit ago, places the final judgment just after his return, the resurrection of the dead, and the transformation of all of those who are living when he returns. Upon Jesus' return, there will be an evaluation of what every person has done in life. A separation will then be made among those people based upon Jesus' evaluation of their lifetimes of thoughts, words, and deeds. Following that evaluation, some enjoy fullness of life forever and ever in new bodies on a renewed earth, and others will be condemned to eternal torment in hell. Now, other passages teach a final judgment of all men and women, boys and girls, and that it will take place just after Jesus' return, and that it will be based upon what we've done in this life. But you've got to hang with me to understand that last sentence that I said. In Matthew 25, 31 through 32, Christ teaches, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, continuing on in verses 33 through 46, Christ makes this separation between people by exposing and judging how during life on earth one group served Him and the other group failed to worship and acknowledge and serve Him. Those whose deeds reveal them to be Christ's sheep are invited to enter the kingdom that He says He has prepared for them from before the very beginning of the world. Those whose deeds prove them to be goats, the non-believers, go away into eternal punishment. Now, our text teaches this scenario as well as those scriptures that I just mentioned. We read the day of judgment taking place in Revelation 20 immediately after the resurrection of believers and non-believers, and we read that the standard of judgment is what everyone has done in this life. Look at Revelation 20:13. The sea gave up the dead that are in it. Now look, there's a reason the Scripture says the sea gave up the dead that are in the early crowd didn't get to do this because they had to go to Sunday school, and you can stay all afternoon. So I can tell you what this is about. See, there are people who think, well, you put, they, knew, they knew in the first century what happened to people that you bury at sea. You want to know what happens? Well, you could figure it out. But the Scriptures say that even the dead that are in the sea are going to be raised. It's a miracle of God, brings it all together, and everybody stands. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged. How? According to what they had done. Now, who is the judge at this trial? Who is the chief auditor? 
Hebrews 12, 23, 1 Peter 1, 17, Romans 14, 10. Lots of Scripture teach that the triune God is the righteous judge of all men. But Paul writes in Acts 17, 31, God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising that man from the dead. Well, you know who that man is. That man is Christ Jesus. One of the primary teachings of John chapter 5 is that God has delegated the final judgment of all to His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. We have an incredible church library. I go to other churches, I look in the library, they have everybody's cast-off junk, Reader's Digest books and all kinds of stuff. We have a really good theological library. I would be very surprised if Anthony Hokema, The Bible in the Future, is not in that library. Wilma Gray, tremendous job, uh, and the people who preceded her as librarians in stacking our library with good stuff. Read it. Here's what he says in The Bible in the Future. It would be a great book for you to read. It is most appropriate that Christ should be the judge in the final judgment. He is the one who became incarnate, died, and rose again for the salvation of His people. Those who believe on Him are saved through Him. Hence, it is most fitting that He should be their judge. Those who have rejected Him, on the other hand, have sinned against Him. Hence, it is appropriate that the one whom they have rejected should be their judge. Makes sense, doesn't it? The work of judging, moreover, will be Christ's final exaltation and His highest triumph. While on earth He was condemned by earthly rulers, now He will sit in judgment over all earthly authorities. Christ will now carry out to its completion His saving work of His people. The judgment will mean the total subjugation of all of Christ's enemies, the completion of His kingdom, after which He will deliver the kingdom up to His Father. It's the end of His entire saving, salvific work, and this is a part of it. So we've looked at the when, we've looked at the judge. Who's going to be judged? There are orthodox evangelical Christians, people we consider close, close brothers and sisters, who believe that there will be multiple judgments with separate ones for uh, Christians and non-Christians. They see non-Christians as being judged for their sins in the presence only of non-Christians, Christians being rewarded only, and being rewarded for their good works in the presence of believers only, without ever being judged for their sins. Now, I would prefer this, but I don't make the rules. And you will be hard-pressed to find multiple segregated judgments in Scripture. I promise you. One verse in Revelation again, and it doesn't, when I say this, it doesn't mean Revelation isn't God's inspired word totally accurate. But Revelation is just full of imagery and metaphor. And the multiple judgment thing, 
the way I described is based on that one verse for the most part, if not totally. For the people who, to whom Jesus spoke directly, good way to read Scripture, and for the first century Jews who read the New Testament, the concept of multiple judgments, segregated judgments, would have been foreign. These believed in a general judgment for everyone as a single event. In John 11, 23 and 24, Jesus says to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, your brother will rise again. Do you remember what Martha said? She replied, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. The phrase day is singular. The phrase, the day of judgment, singular, occurs 32 times in Scripture. The phrases, the judgment and the judgment to come, appear all over the place in Scripture. These are singular references that convince us as Reformed people that there is one great end-of-time tribunal, tribunal at which every person who ever lived is going to be judged. Now, listen again to the pieces of Revelation 20, 11 through 15 that I'm going to read to you. You can look at um, the text and see what I'm doing. I saw the dead, John writes, great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done, and anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Sounds like a general judgment to us. Now, I want to give you a coffee break. We've been pushing pretty hard here through the doctrine of what happens at the end, eschatology, last things. I want you to just take the break and imagine of all generations, people who have scoffed at God's plan of removing sin and said, no, I'm going to try my own way to come to God. Watch them all. See them all standing before God to be examined. Now, it said great and small people are there. That means people who are famous, people that nobody knows. Think about the people there, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Jezebel, Hannah, inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who didn't repent of their sins, pharaohs, Roman emperors, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Attila the Hun, 13 apostles, Henry VIII, Martin Luther, who has ever lived, including you and me, is present to be audited in reference to everything that anyone ever did in life. We have the when, we have the judge, we have the people judged. What is the purpose of the final judgment? Now, you know, most of you, that the final judgment is not a time when God decides who experiences life in the eternal heaven or who experiences life in the eternal hell. And it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but stay here, it'll, it'll fall into place, I think. 
Those decisions are made by each of us in our lifetime. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.18, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The Scripture also teaches that the decision that we make in life is of absolutely no surprise to Almighty God. Paul records in Ephesians 1.4, He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before Him. Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 28, My sheep hear my voice, the sheep given to him by the Father in eternity past. My sheep hear my voice in time, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Now, the Westminster Confession certainly is in our Bible. But the Westminster Divines, you know, sharp people, I'm glad that they get my approbation. I'm sure they're happy. Uh, sharp people knew the Word inside and out, and they based the statements they make, their theology in the confession, on Scripture. Now, listen to what they say in chapter 33 as the reason, or what they give as the reason for the final judgment. Here's what that chapter reads. The end, the goal of God appointing this day, is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy, and they're leaning heavily on Romans 9, as you can tell, in the eternal salvation of the elect, elect and of His justice, His justice in the damnation of the wicked and the disobedient, the people who disobeyed the gospel. I think that's what they're talking about. So the overarching purpose for Judgment Day, as described in Scriptures, is to display, to display to men and to spirit creatures, angels, the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, the grandeur of, of God. It's everything that He is, all of His infinite attributes. It is God's glory that when known and contemplated by humans, fully known, drives them to bow their hearts before Him in wonder, love, praise, and worship, and to give back to Him their lives as the only reasonable thing they can do, living sacrifices. The return of Christ with its attendant final judgment, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, is called the day when He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all of those who have believed. Ephesians 1.5-9 tells us, God predestined us to the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. In the final judgment, the glory of God's mercy and grace in saving us 
is put on the display, is put on display for all who are gathered to see. Now, how does the judgment day show God's glory? Well, the question is best answered by examining what the Scripture reveals about what takes place during the tribunal. So, here we go. This is what we're going to experience. 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul, writing to Christians, says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether they're good or bad, worthless. John writes in Revelation 20.12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. At judgment, the complete record of each life from the beginning to its death, as it exists, as, as the record exists in the omniscience of God, is open before the court. Not only will the record of our deeds be open, that would be bad enough, but our words will be entered into evidence. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, Everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. The word empty there uh, means a word that has no useful end. We must account for every false or damaging word that's spoken. Now, all of that would be bad enough if it was deeds and words and all of that. But our attitudes and motives will also be examined. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Judge nothing before its time, Paul says. Wait until the Lord comes. At that time, He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of our heart. Here's what William Hendrickson says. I promise you he's in our library. In the Bible, the Bible on the life hereafter. Every deed which a man has ever performed Every word he has ever spoken, every thought he has ever conceived, every ambition he has ever cherished, every motive that has ever prompted him to action or to inaction will be laid bare for himself and all to see. In other words, Hendrickson says, barring from Revelation, the books will be opened. Now, I want to tell you something, because this is true, and I don't think we think about it enough in today's evangelical church. Because this is true, it matters how we live our lives day by day. It matters, young people, how you invest your life, how you use your time, your talent, older people, how we invest our wealth. It matters how we treat others the certainty of an audit where every sin we ever committed and every righteous deed that we ever performed are open and publicly adjudicated down to their motives should incite us to live lives that are free of sin. That's how the New Testament uses the thought of judgment, that it is to make us holy. It's one of the uses. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14 is about the day of the Lord. That's Christ's return, the final judgment. In light of these events, Peter asks, what kind of people ought you to be? He answers, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God 
since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, we know that when He, Christ, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, I'm telling you, there are Christians today who think, and I'm not going to say what I'm really thinking, they think they can live like the devil. I want to say the other word, but I'm not going to do it and go to heaven. Well, maybe, but that's not the way we're supposed to live. That's not what God sent His Son to die for us for. He sent His Son to die that we might be holy people, and that the process of sanctification of becoming holy would begin here. Now, the reality of our final audit should not only drive us to lives of obedience to God and to repentance when we sin, it should also move us to invest all that we are, all that we have in the service of the Lord and His kingdom. Have you read some of those Jesus, well, I know you have, the Jesus master-servant parables, like the one in Luke 19, 12 through 27? They teach that we are to be faithful in employing the talents and abilities Christ has given us in the work of the Lord, our master, in the way that He has called us to do that. We are to regularly be engaged with our lives in activities that foster the spread of the gospel and in acts that bring glory and honor to Him in the world in which we live, in our neighborhood, our school, wherever we interact with people. Do things that bring honor and glory. Point people to Jesus. Many scriptures teach our works done for Christ will be rewarded at His throne. But I want you so much to keep in mind that our works and their rewards do nothing to atone for our sins or to cause us to merit God's forgiveness. The only factor that determines anyone's eternal destiny is their relationship to Jesus. That's what Jesus taught in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, meaning believe the gospel, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, it rests upon that person already because of the rejection of Christ. Scriptures teach, however, that saving faith in Jesus changes us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us when we're converted and creates desires within us and gives us the power to obey those desires and the desires are to live for Christ and to please Him and to serve Him and to build His kingdom. So John Calvin writes, it is faith alone that justifies. Faith alone that gives us eternal life. And yet, faith that justifies is never alone. There are always good works because Christ in us produces His works through us. James 2, 17 to 18 Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Our works are displayed and rewarded as evidence of judgment of what Christ has done in and through us. The reward is to Jesus' glory before everyone 
that is gathered there at the judgment. Judgment Day has as its goal the manifestation of the glory of God, specifically the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of you and me, and of His justice in the damnation of those who reject His Son. He's a just judge, and He said that when you sin, the wages of sin is death. He's got to carry out the penalty if He's to be God and be just. Unbelievers with their every sin exposed, including that fatal one of rejecting God's provision for removing sin, rejecting the blood of Christ's sacrifice, will be forced to admit that Christ is perfectly just in sentencing them. They will see on the great day of God's justice, they will see His patience, His goodness, His mercy to them throughout their entire lives and how that was to bring them to repentance, and how, in spite of all of that, they willfully chose not to glorify Him as God. Romans 9, 22, Romans 1, 19, and following. Their great mass of sin and rebellion will testify against them, and it will validate the glory of God's righteous judgment in His punishment of them. At the judgment, the glory of God's mercy and grace will be displayed when the great mountain of my sin and your sin and rebellion is revealed to all, and when each of us is fully acquitted of the smallest of the sins based upon our acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, and when each of us is rewarded for the things we have done for Christ. And I would suggest to you, I've been thinking about this this week, it is only then at judgment that we will be able to know how much we owe. Uh, Robert Murray McShane wrote a hymn about that. Know how much we owe to the God of grace and to the grace of His Son. It is then, with that experience, that we will be equipped to glorify God to our fullest ability, filled with wonder, love, worship, and praise. Now, because our acquittal is absolutely guaranteed, it's a promise that Jesus signed in His own blood. As terrifying as this sounds, the Scriptures teach that because of Jesus' promise, we should have healthy respect for this day, but we need not be terrorized by the thought of final judgment. John tells us in 1 John 15 through 18, we can have confidence on the day of judgment because we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and that He lives in us. So our confidence is in Jesus' sacrifice that atones for every, of, every one of our sins and God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Now, we're about to row the boat to shore here, but I have a question to ask. You have an appointment with this auditor. So do I. You will be there with all who have ever lived. What will be your defense when your sin is exposed? Now, I want to tell you, pleading not guilty is not a viable option. 
every piece of possible evidence related to every offense you've ever committed against God will be present. Remember, this is an omniscient God. He knows everything. You can't get off on past good behavior. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then there's the problem of our motives. Every one of our sins is a capital offense, a capital offense. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. One sin, death. Ezekiel 20.18, the soul who sins, it shall die. The, whole, the soul who sins shall die. The only way of escaping, being sentenced to eternal punishment away from the presence of God and everything good, is to acknowledge your sin and Christ's sacrifice, his death, suffering hell for your sacrifice. Charles Wesley knew the Torah of God, and he also knew the righteousness and love of God. He knew the glory of God's saving grace. And he wrote, in and can it be that I should gain, we're going to sing it in just a minute, no condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ alone, amazing love, how can it be? Your only hope is to accept Jesus. It's your only hope. There's no other way. If you don't accept him, you're going to be consigned to the terrors of hell for all eternity. If you don't know Christ, receive him now as Savior and Lord. He wants to come in, take away your sins, and be able to acquit you fully in that great day. Father, thank you for the attention of your people to your holy word. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work. I pray that there would never be anybody. But thinking about how they should invest their lives in the Christ who did so much for them, to save them from so much. And I pray, Father, that if there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus, that they would come to know him now. I pray that they would acknowledge their sins in a prayer of faith, Acknowledge that Christ came to save sinners. Invite him to come into their lives and tell him that they want him to be their Savior, and that though they don't know all that this means at this point, that their desire is to follow him as Lord, as Master. We pray in Jesus' name.